You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition. Because stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In this episode of Take As Directed, I speak with Dr. Heidi Larson, director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We discuss why vaccine confidence is currently in crisis and how this has fueled outbreaks such as measles and the persistence of polio in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Through her work with the Vaccine Confidence Project, Dr. Larson monitors public confidence in immunization programs. She has developed an important index that ranks vaccine confidence around the world. Thank you, Heidi, for being with us in this podcast to talk about the remarkable moment that we're in right now vis-a-vis vaccines. This is a period of unusual turbulence and uncertainty, and it's a bit of a confusing period. A lot of focus on the power of social media and weaponizing misinformation. A lot of deep technological changes amidst pretty widespread populist nationalism that's being quite disruptive and dangerous. We've seen this remarkable reversal of global health gains, this reinvasion of measles, the rebound epidemic. This has huge health security implications. This kind of regression, no one predicted, and it's tied to technological changes and many other things going on right now. These are not entirely new phenomenon. We've coped with vaccine hesitation and uncertainty for two centuries now. Heidi, you're the you're the world's authority on many of these issues. So why don't you begin at a general level by talking about this remarkable moment that we're in? Thanks, Steve. I think you've laid out the context pretty well. Uh, I think we can't forget that this is partly due to the times we live in. Not that that's an excuse for it, but I think it's gone spiraled in a way that it was beyond what we were concerned about. As you say, this issue of vaccine hesitancy is not brand new. I founded the Vaccine Confidence Project 10 years ago now. So we saw the beginnings of an escalation. People also sometimes forget with Andrew Wakefield and the suggestion that autism was caused by vaccines. Um, He was really on the eve of this digital revolution. In 1998. 1998. His article was published the same year that Google opened their doors, uh, followed by Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the rest. From his perspective, maybe doesn't realize how, quote, lucky he's gotten. Um, But it's one of many. He's certainly not the only one. I mean, there's a tendency to point fingers there. But um, there's a lot of players out there. Uh, Some have positively embraced social Social media. We can't forget the positive assets of social media in reaching people. Uh, online searches can really be valuable, but people have been abusing this 
resource. Now, as you said, with technology historically, there were equal anxieties with every new TV, radio, <laughs> the telegraph. With each of those iterations, there were concerns about how people used it for good or not. In 2013, the World Economic Forum uh, released a report. They do their annual risk reports, which I read thoroughly um, every year. And in 2013, they talked about uh, what they call digital wildfires. And I think that really captures some of the challenges we face today. Uh, even just this in the past few weeks, we've had, uh, I would call it a digital, digital wildfire. Um, in Pakistan, we already have enough challenges with the uh, polio eradication initiative. It, like the current Ebola outbreaks uh, and our efforts to vaccinate there in North in North Kivu, DRC, and in Northwest Frontier in Pakistan, both the polio eradication initiative and some of the out Ebola outbreak control measures were stuck in very deep conflict political situations that are much bigger than the health initiatives, but have to take that into account. But the digital wildfire that uh, just happened in Pakistan was uh, Facebook-based, but a YouTube sending out a message that polio vaccines were poisoning children. Um, it was also uh, the same week that three uh, people working on the polio initiative were killed, one polio worker and two police supposedly gu guarding. Um, it sent uh, a panic through the population. People were um, running to hospitals. It was kind of a mass psychosomatic mass hysteria, but it really disrupted things. And in Islamabad alone, the number of refusals of the polio vaccine jumped from what were typically two to 300, went went up to 100,000 um, out of, I mean, it's a big population, but it just to show what these flash fires of negative information can do and how quickly they can spread. And that by itself is not a concern, but it is a concern when it starts to affect people's health behaviors and has these pretty disastrous outcomes. So in that context, let's talk a little bit about measles because it's reached global scale, right? We have massive outbreaks in Ukraine, Madagascar, Israel, India, sizable ones in Yemen and Nigeria and elsewhere. We have cases that are now over 700 cases in the U.S. All cases originate here from overseas. So this sort of reality of a sudden and massive reversal of fortune from 2000 to 2016. The deaths attributed to measles had dropped from 550,000 a year to under 90,000. The incidents had dropped by over 80% globally. We didn't have this in the U.S., yet now we're faced with this. What do you see as the significance or implications for measles? Yes, on the measles, I think it really is, you know, in every crisis, there's an opportunity, they say. And um, I think that it is a serious wake-up call to how vulnerable public uh, cooperation is right now. Frankly, I see uh, vaccination as being one of the incredible tests of global cooperation, local uh, cooperation in basically with a health intervention that touches pretty much or should every individual on the planet. So it is an incredibly valuable 
um, you know, life-saving intervention, but we clearly are have some tears in the herd protection, as they say, community immunity, um, and and that's really concerning. I think we've been resting too long on national averages and thinking we're doing okay, uh, but these pockets of refusals um, have are really uh, the concern because these issues, these sentiments often cluster in communities or in groups, Mm -hmm. uh, which is more dangerous than if they were scattered individually across the country uh, in whatever country you're in. Can you just give us a couple of examples of those somewhat self-contained communities? Uh, We have a a few of them there that we had in Oregon, uh, in Washington State, and the the most serious outbreak uh, in terms of contained has recently been in the New York City area, in Rockland County, and in Brooklyn, um, in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community. And what's interesting is, um, and I, I think in a number of countries we had similar issues with polio that they have we've had outbreaks in communities that have been religious communities by their shared belief but really the issue in this community was not that ideologically or for religious reasons they were refusing a vaccine it's a very closed community kind of feeling a bit unaffected by the external world but also the new dimension there uh was a young mother who um, had introduced um, alternative facts uh, about vaccination, which were quite negative, uh, in brochures, in an online um, called Peach. Um, and we have a number of these pop-up groups um, in a number of countries by young mothers um, who are questioning the contents of vaccine. And, the, and it's quite, it's extremely damaging. And when that spreads inside a trusted community when it's one of our own, um, it's believed more readily. And I think that we should look at these closed communities less uh, because of their religious identity and more because they're a trusted network that where shared beliefs get quickly uh, accepted. And in this case, it was it was it's been serious. Uh, they had more um, cases more than half of the cases in the entire United States were there. And that came from a traveler in, in Israel that, as you mentioned, is also having its outbreaks, and then connected also uh, uh, to the Orthodox uh, Jewish community in northern London. I live in that borough. Mm-hmm. Um, and those also, I mean, while it's a closed community to a certain extent, it's not. I mean, they do There's travel. There's a diaspora. And, there's a diaspora. Um, and with those shared beliefs come shared viruses. You've made the point that these issues don't necessarily lend themselves to categorical conclusions, that it doesn't divide into simple tribes of pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. The power of social media in this instance is also part of a broader uh, set of of problems where social media play into privacy issues, into a spread of hatred, racial or anti-Semitic, questions around terror and counter-terror. The breakdown in trust is part of an era, right? This is an era in which trust in science, in medicine, in elected officials, in corporate entities is at an all-time high. So from where you sit, what does this mean in terms of a strategy of engagement to mitigate 
these trends that we've just been talking about? Well, like the measles outbreak, I see a real opportunity for immunization in this context. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, the drivers of a lot of what we're facing in uh, in the vaccine community uh, and in immunization is um, has been damaged or. Um, uh, certainly, um, the breakdown of trust, the issues of all these layers of distrust in um, business, in government, in in science, uh, is is bigger than the vaccine or immunization programs. On the other hand, historically, uh, immunization has been the ultimate tool for um, diplomacy, health diplomacy, as we used to call it, because just by the nature, for the same reasons, it's been vulnerable to being affected by polarization, by technology, and by um, distrust in business is because it is made primarily by the private sector, I mean, produced, uh, regulated by government. So if you've got an issue with government and distrust the government, you know, they're regulating, approving, recommending, and sometimes mandating vaccines. Um, and it's related to science and health officials. And so it's all the things that can either be a positive asset or a damaging one. And historically, as I mentioned, we had things like days of tranquility for early days in the polio vaccination. Uh, the complication with the days of tranquility today is that then we could ask, like in, uh, I believe, Honduras, and there were a few other countries where, uh, you know, the warring sides would put their guns down for one day to allow the vaccinators. These conflicts are far more complex. And it's not clear. It's not like there's a good side and a bad side. There's multiple players, and some of them are players, you know, within different groups. The multi multiple Taliban, for instance, make it a more complex environment. But I do think because vaccination does touch every life, every effort we can do to build trust around this incredible global and national initiative and effort from a health perspective can contribute to the broader environment. Anything we can do to build trust within the context of vaccination and immunization programs locally, nationally, and globally can help. So we should see it as having the specific outcome of increasing confidence in vaccines and the program, but also recognizing that just because of the nature of this, the globalness of this, that it can contribute to um, maybe um, building trust in other aspects of society. You see a lot of ambivalence and hesitation to act the leadership at a national level. Certainly here we have some ambivalence, although if you go a step down and you listen to Tony Fauci or Secretary Azar, there's no hesitation, there's no ambiguity, and those sort of appeal that you made, they are out there exercising their leadership. And as I said, President Trump has recently come forward with a pretty unequivocal statement in support of vaccination on measles. When you look at the medical and public health communities, the AMA has come forward with a statement, but they're not really poised to jump in the fray and really be muscular about this. They are afraid of their own constituencies being ambivalent about this and also becoming targets uh, themselves. And so it's too toxic 
it's too risky. And so you see the the very place where you need to see strong leadership, you don't see it there. And when you look at congressional oversight, we've had letters from Congress to some of the social media and the like. But there's deep First Amendment considerations that are going to lead people to be very cautious and incremental in this. States have the power in their legislatures and the governors to begin to to narrow the exemptions that we've seen in California after the Disneyland outbreak that they tightened things up and they had significant impact. But those battles are played out state by state. It's not an easy win, as we've seen in many states that continue to have strong constituencies tied to the anti-vaccine movement that are that are not in favor of that sort of thing. So how – my question would be how do you motivate and incentivize players who are already clearly very ambivalent about sticking their necks out on this issue? The issue about the cautiousness of some of the medical and health authorities – Um, like the American Medical Association. You mentioned the AMA letter. It's one thing to send a letter. It's another thing to realize it. I think some of that is genuine concern uh, because some of these anti-groups are uh, uh, becoming uh, very aggressive, uh, even threatening to some of these uh, individual doctors. Um, Not all. And I think one risky thing is this framing of these debates as either pro or anti, uh, there are clearly a, a very aggressive group of what I would call anti-vaxxers. But we can't lose in this tendency to, to polarize and popularize this 80% in the middle who are genuinely questioning young parents who deserve an opportunity to be asking questions um, and have conversations. We need more conversations in there. I think there are smaller things without putting their neck out too far that we need to figure out ways to work into daily interactions in public health consultations with GP practices and others in waiting rooms, figuring out ways there's an opportunity for someone to ask question to a person. Because in the absence of that, with more and more pressed time, um, less time for discussion, and an anxiety to even open the conversation because uh, doctors and, and health practitioners know that this is a loaded issue, and they're afraid to even open the door for that. We need a space where people can have those discussions, because in the absence of that, they go online. And that's where, frankly, the apart. trouble yeah. begins. That's a really great point. To follow on that, during the second Obama term here in the United States, we had a sharp drop off or stagnation in the HPV virus, in the human papilloma virus. Uh, the vaccination rate, coverage rates for adolescent girls were stuck at 30%. Boys were even were far worse. The president used a year-long commission to put a focus on understanding the nature of the problem. And the conclusion of that commission, as I recall, was exactly in line with what you've just said. Health providers had to be empowered to feel more comfortable and more confident in what they conveyed in their personal conversations with parents. They had to be dissuaded from postponing or avoiding the conversation. And now our rates are up. They doubled fairly rapidly. On the question of how do you stigmatize and expose the most fraudulent and malignant actors out there, there's no – I take your point about the 80 percent 
and treat them respectfully and listen and be open. But side by side, we have a problem of truly malignant and and fraudulent actors out there. Well, I think that's a big role where how uh, we can work together with social media and technology companies because uh, the f- one of the things we can do in the first instance is to reduce the amplification of these very malignant, and I totally agree, quite dangerous uh, players um, when it comes to public health. Um, I think we have plenty of evidence now, I mean, documented research on the um, the emotional contagion, as it were, that can be created, the panic, the fear. I mean, Facebook themselves has done their own internal research on the um, how their own uh, technology can contribute to changing people's opinions and emotions. So I think that that's in the first instance, because we're not the first place to go is forget about trying to change their mind. But what we can do is try to two things, contain the amplification of their negative messages, and two, give a lot more alternative views in the same mediums. And that, as you rightly point out, has not happened. There's been a real anxiety on the part of the public uh, health and and medical community to go into that messy, emotional, non-fact space. Um, But, uh, you know, there are a growing number of examples where uh, health officials have partnered with um, local communities and, Mm -hmm. and others to use this uh, in a positive way. And so I think we need a lot more of that. So I think from two sides, try to kind of cut back on the amplification of the, we're not going to be able to do all of it because it's highly sophisticated and embedded in other spaces. Um, uh, and and also there, there are very clear um, uh, constitutional issues in in not wanting to get to the issue of um, censorship is something we do have to respect that that um, so I think in both sides at least as somewhere to start one thing we've seen with measles is that the outbreaks have brought a number of pro-vaccine parents kind of out of the closet who Mm -hmm. have kind of put up with these alternative views. Um, But I think in the the situation with measles, they're coming out much more strongly saying enough is enough. And that's because the, the threat is now real and visible. In that sense, the silver lining to the measles, the global rebound of measles is that consciousness of the true threat is now way up. And people have to question when they enter certain spaces in certain cities whether they're exposing themselves and their children to measles through the delinquency of others. I do agree. I think this is an important, a very important moment that offers opportunities for the kinds of informed con- conversations and for leadership by parents and by elected officials and others. One thing that you've mentioned that I wanted to close with is this phenomenon creates um, uh, implicit deep vulnerabilities. This phenomenon we've been talking about here makes us much more vulnerable in the event of a major outbreak. 
that is much more dangerous and 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 fast moving than measles. Measles is pretty damn fast moving, and it is dangerous. But you could imagine an outbreak of pandemic flu that would be many times more dangerous. And um, and if we are in the midst of um, of 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 widespread distrust and lack of confidence in vaccines, it seems to me it really does put us in a very vulnerable position for the future. Can you say a bit about that? How do you bring that vulnerability forward to policymakers and to leaders and to faith leaders and elected officials and the like? I think um, looking at measles as a wake-up call um, for the vulnerability is a really – we need to use this this opportunity, moment, yeah. this moment um, to – uh, shed light on the fact that uh, Houston, we've got a problem. And frankly, um, our childhood immunization rates, even with measles, is way better than our influenza vaccine uptake globally. Last year in the United States, there were 80,000 people who died of just seasonal influenza. That's not pandemic. That's not sometimes what can be far more fatal strains. If our societies um, beha- um, act like they currently are around vaccination for flu, we're in trouble. It could be extremely fatal. Um, we didn't have vaccines in 1918 when 50 million people were, some estimate, up to 100 million killed, 500,000 inf- 500 million infected. Um, we have um, vaccines now. Um, we're not, we'll see how quickly we can do one when we're hit with a serious pandemic. It also depends on how quickly we can have a vaccine. But aside from the vaccine, just the kinds of things you need to do in society to cooperate, um, to protect, uh, there are a lot of other measures you can do while the right vaccine is becoming ready for a pandemic. But I do think we need to use this moment because we do have much bigger risks at stake. Just to close on this, um, we haven't talked much about the value of simulations. You know, you've talked about the need for additional conversations, very structured and and informed conversations. It seems to me that there's going to be a big role here for simulations in trying to bring across the realities and the and the risks in 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 terms of of uh, dangerous situations unfolding that are totally plausible, um, the simulations that we've participated in one of the things that came across was as as the as the outbreak scaled, everyone migrated to the vaccine as where where's the vaccine, and most people had a false sense of how quickly it could be prepared and delivered, manufactured and delivered. and But it was amazing to me how quickly everyone in the room migrated to that option. So maybe you could just offer some closing thoughts around that issue, but also anything else that you care to add is at, at the closing. Well, vaccines aren't made overnight. Um, and I think people, they're not in a in an armory of, um, we have, it's a, that's also a very fragile industry. I mean, they're biological products. Um, they uh, provoke our own natural immunity. But uh, some of these um, 
diseases which we do prevent have a more, you can use the same vaccine over other years. But with flu, the complications of it is the strains are always changing. And that's the risk is we might get a, a mix of strains that are we've never been exposed to before, which is what happened in 1918, that we have no protection except for containment. But a flu vaccine can be made on the platforms that exist when the strains are right, but they, you can't produce them that quickly. And I think the important point about that is the reason, one of the reasons it takes a while to get from when they've identified the strain to get the vaccine is the incredible rigorous safety measures that are put in place before any vaccine goes out the door. I think more than the length of the vaccine's uh, preparedness, we need to to do a much better job in creating awareness about the extensive safety measures that go into any vaccine before it ever reaches the public. Thank you so much for being with us today, Heidi. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed, featuring Heidi Larson, Director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We invite you to subscribe to Take as Directed so you never miss our latest episodes. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. Mm-hmm.